Good morning, church family. How are we doing today? Good morning. Thank you for stirring my affections for the Lord today. Just listening to all you guys sing that song together, Be Thou My Vision, I'm just, oh man, you guys stirred up my love for the Lord today. You blessed me. You encouraged me. And I believe you gave glory to the Lord in that. That was amazing. I, I love that song. Man, Be Thou My Vision. O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Meaning, don't let anything else be everything to me except you. So beautiful, so powerful. As we, as a church family this year, you've been here for a little while. You know what I'm about to say. If you're new here, we welcome you. We hope that you have a good time with our church family today. We're in the middle of something called the year of the Bible, where we're taking January to December to go Genesis to Revelation, following the primary narrative and story of Scripture, showing that the Bible is one story about Jesus, not 50 stories about a bunch of random different people, but all of those different people were serving the purposes of leading up to the revelation of Jesus Christ, his ministry, his work when he came, when he said it is finished on the cross, changing all of history, dying and being raised from the dead, that that was the turning point of history. The Bible is all about him. And so we have a reading plan we're reading throughout the week. We would love for you to jump in on that with us, even though we're already in almost October somehow. Almost, like thinking about buying Christmas presents, Lord help me. Already, we would welcome and love for you to jump in that reading plan with us. You can grab it out at the info desk or you can get it off of our website um, there as well, wog.church. In this reading plan where we read throughout the week and then we come together on Sunday to talk about what we read, we just started the book of Acts, which excites me a ton. Last week, as we concluded our weeks in the four Gospels, we saw that the resurrection and the ascension of Christ is the turning point, the watershed moment of history. It is the turning point not just of the history of the Roman Empire, not just of the history of Europe and Eurasia, not just the turning point of that era. It is the turning point of all history and all existence. The resurrection of Christ is that. And that's where we were last week. This week, we will see that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is the turning point in our individual lives. Our church is a melting pot of theological backgrounds. Our church is. People come to our church from many different backgrounds, and they come here for several different reasons. One of the most common reasons I hear that people come to our church and love our church is because we dig into Scripture. We study the Word of God. We want to know what the Word of God says. We want to take it for what it says. We want to live it out. And so many people have come to our church from so many different backgrounds, and especially in this year of the Bible, I have heard over and over and over from so many people that they are in the Bible more than they've ever been in their life, Praise God, that's the goal. And that people are learning more about God than they have ever in their life. Praise God, that's the goal. And hopefully you're knowing God better than you ever have in your life. That is the goal of this, what we're doing in the year of the Bible. But our church being a, a melting pot of theological backgrounds, I would say probably 30% of our church are people who grew up in 
very liturgical, traditional backgrounds like Catholic and Lutheran backgrounds. And we've got probably 30% of our church who have come from other denominational backgrounds that aren't quite as liturgical, but still very traditional, more like uh, Baptist or UCC or whatever different denomination that I might leave out or not mention. And then we have 30% of our church who's probably come out of what I would call a charismatic or a Pentecostal background. And as we venture into the book of Acts, the book of Acts is a, a, a narrative, a historical theological narrative, wherein a lot of denominational separation and division and splitting has happened over what's accounted in the book of Acts. And with the fact that we have so many backgrounds in our church family wandering into or walking into the book of Acts, there are people who might have nerves around some of the conversation. And I think, uh-oh, is this where we turn into the cult? Is this where we start seeing weird stuff and start doing weird stuff? Some, some people might start thinking, oh, this is where we finally get to get into the real meat of the power of the Holy Spirit. And based on what you grew up in and what your experience was and how you've been taught in the culture that has been given to you from church, there's all sorts of perspectives represented in our church family. So in all of that, I want to remind all of us that the goal is not that we would be this sect or be this way or um, make sure that we align with any certain denomination or background or anything like that. Our goal as a church is to be biblical. And we have a value, one of our core values, we have seven of them. One of them is we are always willing to give up what we believe for the truth. Man, let that be true of us, that if scripture shows you something and it's something that you wrestle with or struggle with, let scripture win. Don't let your own opinion win. Don't let your preferences win. Don't let the wounds of your past win. Let scripture win in determining what you believe how you live, and what you practice. So, as we venture into the book of Acts, I want to try to point out a few things to consider, okay? Number one, the book of Acts, as I just said a few moments ago, is a historical, theological narrative. Narrative meaning story or account of things that happened, okay? Acts is a historical, theological narrative, and that's important to understand and recognize because when you're reading historical and theological narrative from Scripture, whether that is the book of Acts, whether that is the four Gospels, whether that is Old Testament narrative like Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and on, when you're reading narrative, it's important that you understand it is narrative and not necessarily normative or prescriptive. There are some things in the narratives that are normative and prescriptive. And what do I mean by that normative and prescriptive? Meaning there are things in these stories that we are to take away and go, okay, this is something that, that this narrative makes clear is prescribed to us to do. And then there are some things in these narrative stories that are not prescriptive for us to do. And if you just treat all biblical narrative as prescriptive, then you have to start expecting certain things or trying to fabricate certain things and make certain things happen and or even doing things that if you read the narrative in context, it's clear you're not supposed to do. For example, if all biblical narrative, if all biblical story accounts are normative and or prescriptive, then all of us should be polygamists. Because you could read in the Old Testament how some of the patriarchs of the faith were polygamists. 
And you can read about different people who throughout history were used by God to accomplish different things, yet they had many wives and or even concubines. You can go to Solomon, the man who was so wise, yet at the same time had 700 women, which was not wise and honestly not faithful to God. Yet you can go to the opening chapters of Genesis chapters 2 and 3 where you can, in this narrative, see what is prescriptive and what God has designed for marriage. A man and a woman to become one flesh before God to accomplish his purposes together. And so you sit there and if you go, okay, all narrative means we have to always do everything that we see in these story accounts well, then there's some things that are going to, be, going to become quite problematic. And so it's important that we're sensitive to and trying to pay attention to, okay, in this narrative account that I'm reading, whether it's Old Testament narrative, whether it's the four gospels, whether it's the book of Acts, those are the narratives in scripture that we're sensitive to and asking ourselves different questions of, is what I'm reading prescriptive or descriptive? Okay, because there are parts in the book of Acts that are descriptive, saying, here's what happened. And there's parts of the book of Acts that are prescriptive, saying, here's what you, you should do. When, when Peter is asked, hey, how do I get saved? And he's like, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, repent and be baptized. That's prescriptive. And we're going to see some things today uh, that are both. We're going to see some, some descriptive accounts. We're going to see some prescriptive accounts. We must be careful with what is normative versus what is, what is unique. Much of the errored understanding and errored doctrines and errored practices come from taking these unique narrative stories and applying them all sweepingly as if they are prescriptions, okay? Now, there are prescriptions in these books and we'll see them and believing that the Lord is going to teach us and show us what they are. But just to, to dial this in a little bit more, an example of how even just taking all of it sweepingly as prescriptive becomes difficult because you'll see in the book of Acts accounts where people were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. And then you'll see accounts in the book of Acts where people were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the gospel boldly in front of opposition. Then you'll also see Accounts where people were filled with the Spirit and they did great signs and wonders. And so, which one is it? Which one of these things is the things that happened? And you're trying to find a prescription where there may not be one, when it might more be a description of something that happened, where we need to ask, okay, what's the point of this account that was put here? Okay? Here's the bottom line. As a church that is a theological melting pot, as a church that desires to be biblical, as a church that is called to unity, as a church who desires to be and do church faithfully according to God's word, let's be patient and gracious with each other, okay? Let's be patient and gracious with each other concerning these things. Because you could hear some of this stuff, and I'll just put it out there. We as a church, we are unapologetically continuationists. We are not cessationists, meaning we don't believe that tongues and prophecy and etc. we do not believe that those gifts ceased as cessationists do believe. Now, you might be today years old when you're feeling like, oh no, this is a cult. No, <laughs> we just want to be biblical, okay? The same way you might be, uh, you might be wrestling with other accounts, other issues relative to this. Here's the thing. 
If you are going to faithfully pursue God and humble yourself before Scripture as authoritative, it can and should and will confront and challenge you. How many of you in the year of the Bible, as you've been reading the Bible, have, had, have read something and had, and had yourself think something along the lines of, oh, oh, I didn't know that, or oh, I've never seen that, or I, I don't know if I like that. All right, welcome to the party. But we do believe in the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, and believe that God gave it to us to teach us, as First or Second Timothy 3 tells us, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, training, rebuke, reproof, training in righteousness. Amen? This week, we get to see the birth of the church. What a beautiful, wonderful thing we got to see in Scripture. Go to Acts chapter 1. Let's turn to Acts chapter 1. And we'll start reading in verse 1. We read this, a little bit of this last week. We're going to read it again. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In this first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And he's talking about the first book, meaning Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, and this is his second book, the account of the Acts of the Apostles. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He, pre he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days or during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, and as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This, is Je or, this Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The church is born between the ascension of Christ, and we still today are in between the ascension and the advent, the second advent, the return of Christ. We are here still today waiting for him to do what this angel and other prophets and other apostles said, waiting and longing for him to come back and restore and redeem and fix all this jacked up mess that is our world, sin, pain, suffering, sorrow, sickness. Jesus ascends if Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection and ascension were his ultimate, as I said, mic drop, if they were his mic drop, the Holy Spirit of God indwelling us, 
is us picking up that microphone and saying, um, hey, did y'all hear what he did? Did y'all see what Jesus did? Have you heard what he did? Him raising from the dead is the turning point of history. And then we're going to see how the Holy Spirit comes into us, empowers us, transforms us for the mission and purposes of God. So last week we saw in the last chapter of Luke that the resurrection changed history. Today in the book of Acts, also written by Luke, we'll see that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit changes us. In fact, let me say that a little more clearly and with a little more intentionality. The resurrection changed history, and the Holy Spirit changes us. The resurrection changed history, the Holy Spirit changes us. In Acts 1.8, Jesus told his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He didn't stop there, though. Notice, he gave context and assignment to that power. It wasn't power for the sake of power. He says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then as we talked about last week, after this format is laid out that you will receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then the ends of the earth, what we see in the rest of the book of Acts is that verse playing out. We see in Acts chapters 1 through chapter 7, their gospel witness in Jerusalem and in Judea. Then in Acts chapters 8 through 12, we see the apostles take the gospel to Samaria and Antioch. Then the rest of the book of Acts culminates with Paul's three missionary journeys throughout the empire of Rome and ending in Rome, which is the capital of what would have been perceived by the audience of Scripture in the first century, as the ends of the earth. Listen, how could such a ragtag group of disciples, we're talking about fishermen, we're talking about tax collector Matthew, who was hated by other Jews, we're talking about Luke, who's a physician, we're talking about Judas, or I'm sorry, uh, well, yeah, there was him too, but we've already got past what happened to him. Simon the Zealot, who would have been a passionate religious political assassin? This ragtag group of people, how is it that these guys could take the commission of God to go and spread the gospel and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he had commanded? How is this ragtag group of people going to accomplish such a magnanimous, did I make that word up? Maybe it's real, I don't know. Such a huge task by the power of the Holy Spirit. If it is only up to them and their own knowledge, their own skill, their own intellect, their own experience, their own drive, their own willpower, they are going to falter. But Jesus told them, go and wait in Jerusalem. I'm going to send the gift of the Holy Spirit. My Father will send the Holy Spirit, and he will empower you to be my witnesses. How could they deal with all the persecution and suffering that would come? How would they know where to go, what to say, and to, to who, and when? How would they be able to confirm the gospel message? 
How would they have the boldness and the courage to stand up to the Sanhedrin and the religious powers that be and confront them and not back down when they were trying to silence them, but to stand up bold chest and loud voice and say, listen, we're not going to stop talking about Jesus. Beat us if you want to. Threaten us if you want to. Kill us if you want to. We can't help but talk about what we have seen and heard. How can they do that? Because they receive power from on high through the paraclete, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit of God. They depended on the Holy Spirit and we must depend on the Holy Spirit. The mission's the same, guys. You could say today, with the book of Acts ending in Acts 28, you could say today, we are in Acts chapter 29. The mission has not changed. The commission has not ceased. What Jesus said at the end of Matthew, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you until the end of the age. Jesus' prescription And that ending of Matthew, the narrative of Matthew, that prescription of his commission, I'm not even trying to rhyme today, so the Holy Spirit must be working. (laughs) The prescription of that commission to go and make disciples, teaching them, baptizing them, still stays for us today, not just to pastors, not just to missionaries, not just to evangelists. If you are a member of the body of Christ, that commission is for you. It is for all of us. We all share that responsibility. All of us will stand before the Lord someday and give an account for how we obeyed or disobeyed that call. That commission in Acts chapter one that we just read saying, you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses still stands for us today. That we still today are called to go and be witnesses in Sheboygan Falls and in Sheboygan County and in Wisconsin, and in whatever context God has placed you. You have people in your circles and in your life and your influence that I will never be able to reach. You have people in your life that I can never touch. You have people that you have influence in that I will never meet. And this idea that, that, that reaching people with the gospel is the pastor or the professional vocational minister's job is deception from the enemy to try and stop you from being fruitful in the kingdom of God and to keep you afraid. If you've got the Holy Spirit, we see in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit gives us boldness to say what fear would try and stop us from saying. The Holy Spirit gives you courage. We're not even worried about if people are going to kill us for saying anything about Jesus. And these guys are being threatened with their lives. They're being beaten to where they have bones exposed. They're being brutally tortured for their faith in Christ. And they rejoiced in it. In fact, if you went to chapter 4, you're going to see where the apostles were like, man, I thank God he counted me worthy of suffering for him. How do you do that on your own power? You don't. You can't. How do you have those hard conversations with the people in your life on your own? You can try. But if you have the Holy Spirit guiding you, 
giving you what to say, empowering you in the moment. You can do things that you could have never done on your own. We must depend on the Holy Spirit. Let's look at the coming of the Holy Spirit. Let's turn now to Acts chapter 2. should turn over one page. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, this is a Jewish festival, okay? Let me clarify that because a lot of times today we don't know better and we think Pentecost just equals when the Holy Spirit came and when tongues were manifesting in their midst and all that stuff. Uh, That happened on Pentecost, which is a part of one of the Jewish festivals, the day of 50 or the day of weeks. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Notice these things. Now there dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews or there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This is after the diaspora, the dispersion where Jews had spread out. Verse six, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered, rightly so, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, native tongue, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia and Pontus and Asia and Phrygia and Pamphylia, proselyte, I'm sorry, uh, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, I'll stop there. I want to point out one thing and clarify one thing because of what I see sometimes in our day and in our age and in our culture. This manifestation of the gift of tongues is literally languages. That's why there's the account of all these different people present and they're going, what in the world is going on? I'm hearing all these Galileans who should not know my language, I hear them speaking the wonders of God in my language. I remember the Bible school that I went to um, that I kind of have left certain aspects of that theology that I grew up in in the past, and I've tried to let Scripture reform where I land on these issues. Um, I remember when there was a class where one of the faculty, the teacher, he was up, he was like, all right, now let's all pray in tongues now. And the class, we all stand up, and on the microphone, he starts doing this. He goes, I'm not trying to mock. I really am not. But he just starts doing that. And I'm going, that's not a language. And I also remember another one of my friends who went to that Bible school who then becomes a youth pastor um, at a church Uh, after the Bible school. And I remember he posted on social media one day a picture of these Bibles that he bought a bulk, a bunch of Bibles for his youth ministry that he was going to hand out. And he takes a picture of this account in Acts. 
And they, and in this translation that I won't mention, it says, and they began to speak in other languages. And my friend posted it and he said, look what they did. They changed tongues to languages. Uh Uh-uh, they got to me too late, is what he said. He said, don't try and change it. I know what tongues is. Don't try and make it languages. And I'm just going... Jeff, don't you see that tongues? Jeff, sorry if you're watching today. Call me and we'll talk. (laughs) Don't you see tongues literally means languages. They spoke in other tongues, meaning they spoke in other languages. That's why all these people are sitting here hearing it and going, hey, they're speaking in my tongue. And so this mindless babbling that, that, that is not a language is a fabrication of people trying to manufacture a gift that comes from God. We believe this gift still exists today. But I also sat in ministries and in services, and, and, and I repent in my past that I was a part of these services where we would teach people how to pray in tongues. And you never once in scripture when someone's praying in tongues, never once do you see them being taught. It is a gift that is imparted by God. And if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which we'll get to in a few more weeks, where we're going to talk a little bit more in nuance about some of these things, you'll see where the Apostle Paul talks about God gives these gifts to whomever he wills. That he gives the gifts of the Spirit to those whom he wills. And so the idea that every time someone is filled with the Spirit, they have to speak in tongues as the evidence, I believe is unbiblical. Now, there are accounts in the book of Acts where that does happen, and it is an evidence in those moments. But I don't believe that Scripture teaches it as the only evidence of someone being filled by the Spirit of God. In fact, there is a place in the Bible that says the evidence of someone having the Holy Spirit within them is Galatians 5. Galatians 5.22, when it says the fruit of the Spirit. If you look in the New Testament and you look at everywhere that fruit is mentioned, you see that term fruit means evidence. When Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit, that a good tree produces good fruit, a bad tree produces bad fruit, and that this is a, a term that is used to say you know something, it's evidenced by its fruit. There's other times where the apostles say, bear the fruit in keeping with repentance, meaning live in a way that proves that you have repented of your sin. And so the apostle Paul writing to the Galatians in Galatians 5, he says, you want to know what the evidence of the Holy Spirit is in someone's life? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And he says this right after this this list of if someone is walking in the flesh and does not have the Holy Spirit, he goes through this laundry list of sin and selfishness. But then he says the evidence or the fruit of the Holy Spirit in someone's life is that they are loving. Not did they pray in tongues. In fact, if you went further in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, you could see the Apostle Paul saying, are all apostles? Do all prophesy? Are, are all, do all have gifts of healing? Do all 
pray in tongues or speak in tongues? And the inferred answer of the rhetorical questions is no. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. He says, do all do it? No. And it's in a context where he says, God gives gifts to the body as he wills. And so maybe God has given you that gift. And if he has given you that gift, it's not going to be because somebody taught you. Every account in scripture where someone prays in tongues is because the Holy Spirit said, bam, and they began praying in tongues. I don't believe it can be taught. I believe it is a gift imparted by the Holy Spirit. And if you have that gift, use it. Pray in the Spirit. Pray in tongues. Edify yourself. Pray the mysteries of God. But if we're going to say it is a prescription, an example of when someone has been filled with the Holy Spirit, I don't believe that all of Scripture. And here's the point that I'm trying to make from earlier. When you take one account here, one account there, without acknowledging tota scriptura, all of Scripture, that's where you get some doctrines that might be a little off. And that's where we have to take something we see and weigh it against all of Scripture, okay? All of Scripture. The Holy Spirit, we see two of the most significant and most historical, most world-changing and life-changing events happen extremely close to each other. And that Jesus turns the world upside down by coming back from the dead, conquering sin and Satan. And then the Holy Spirit turns believers upside down by taking up residence in their hearts. The Holy Spirit literally comes in. Before this happens, God's presence was on the mountain with Moses. And you're like, don't, Moses, you go ahead, go up the mountain. I don't want to go up there. I'm terrified. Or God's presence is in the tabernacle and only the high priest once a year can go in there. God's presence is in there. We stay out here. Or after they build the temple, Solomon builds the temple or hundreds of years later, Herod rebuilds the temple and everybody knows the presence of God is in there in the Holy of Holies. And we don't go in there. Only the high priest does once a year after making sure they've done everything to purify themselves. This is a game changer. Now the Holy Spirit comes in and makes residence in us. This is another game changer. In fact, Paul writing to the Corinthians again at one point would say, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit comes in and makes his dwelling in us? Like, how does that not blow our mind? How does that not transform us? And I would argue, if you haven't been transformed and changed, that it probably hasn't happened to you. Because the Holy Spirit of God cannot come into you and you go on in your life the same way that you did before. We're talking about the God of the universe, the God eternal. We're talking about the God who is upholding all things. We're talking about the creator of all things, the one who is infinite and all-powerful. And if that God comes to live in you by measure of the Holy Spirit, you don't look the same. You don't look the same. This is a game changer. I remember when my dad came home one year with this game changer. <laughs> who had one? Anybody have one of those? Yeah. I remember when my dad came home with that. Before he came home with this, it was calling so-and-so's house. They're not there. I'll try again later. 
Maybe I'll leave a, a, a message on the answering machine. Remember those? Some kids right now are like, what? Is that a toy? Like, <laughs> yeah, that actually, I remember when my dad brought that home. Now, we didn't have to be at home or at the office or somewhere that had a landline to make a call. We could literally pull that out of dad's briefcase wherever we were, wherever there was signal, and we could call anywhere, anyone, and they could call him. He could be connected to anyone at any point, again, of course, in that day, as long as there was signal. Then after that, I remember he got this one, the uh, Motorola StarTech, and that was like, wow, look how small that thing is. Because you remember even before the one I just showed that it started with the tall bricks, like on Saved by the Bell with a huge antenna that sticks up. Yeah, wow, we didn't have one of those. My dad got the StarTech, and then it was like, look at this sweet, awesome little thing. My first cell phone when I was 16 was the Motorola 5165 where you could change the face plates, play Snake on it. Yeah, I was a boss on Snake. Mine had Dallas Cowboys faceplate on it, but yours was probably Packers and all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then after that, 2007 was a revolutionary year for another game changer when Apple goes iPhone. And because of everything that this device is and all of its advances since then, our lives have been completely changed. Like, do you remember when you actually had to look up on the atlas where you wanted to go and actually had to pay attention to road signs? Kids are like, what's an atlas? <laughs> do you remember like when you were walking in the dark and you had to just walk in the dark because you don't carry a flashlight on you like a weirdo? Instead of just going, flashlight, all right, I can see where I'm going. <laughs> Do you remember when we used to have to actually watch the news for the meteorologist to lie to us about the weather? <laughs> Do you remember when you actually had to really legitimately memorize phone numbers other than your spouses and your home and your workplace? Like you had to actually memorize phone numbers or use a phone book or something like that. Do we remember all this? Do you remember when, what it was like when, when you had someone ask you a random question like, hey, how long do you think it took Leo Tolstoy to write War and Peace? And you actually would just have to go, yeah, I don't know. Instead of going, hang on. Oh, uh, he wrote it in six years. Like game changer of game changers. Our lives have never been the same, in some ways for the better and in some ways for the worse. And unlike cell phones and smartphones, the Holy Spirit has come in and has completely revolutionized and changed the game, not at all for the worse, but 100% for the better. In that, my dad could walk around and receive a call at any moment or make a call at any moment at the fact that we can do whatever we need to do on our phones at any moment because that device, that access, that power is at our fingertips, in our pocket all the time. Now, God's not on the mountain. He's not in the tabernacle. He's not in the temple. He's in us, with us, empowering us emboldening us, leading us, guiding us, convicting us, drawing us, working in us to refine us and prune us and mature us and sanctify us. The Holy Spirit is with us at all times at work in us for the glory of God and for the kingdom purposes. Amen. In the end of the Gospels, 
give us the good news that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, changing the world, and the beginning of the book of Acts gives us the good news that the Holy Spirit changes us. And it's a little like the early church, rather than talking about what life was like before iPhones, they might be saying, hey, do you remember when, what it was like when we couldn't remember certain truths of scripture, but now the Holy Spirit brings those things back to our remembrance? Man, how awesome. Do you, do you remember what it was like when we used to have to try to navigate suffering and persecution with hope that it would end, but, but without the comfort of the Holy Spirit indwelling us? Like, do you remember what it was like when we would try to strengthen and encourage and exhort each other unto good works and faithfulness without these incredible, miraculous gifts that the Holy Spirit has given us? Do you remember what it was like when we had to resist the flesh and flee temptation on our own will, power, and with hearts dead and hardened by sin? Do you remember what it was like before that? Do you remember what it was like before the Holy Spirit came in and changed the game? It's completely different. And if you're trying to be a Christian on your own power, on your own strength, and are not depending daily, moment by moment, on the power of the Holy Spirit, it will only take a certain amount of time before you find out you can't do it. You don't got the goods. You don't have the power. You don't have the ability. And God calling us into an impossible mission comes in as the God of the impossible to take residence in our hearts empowering us to do what we cannot do on our own. The book of Acts teaches us that the Spirit of God empowers the people of God to accomplish the mission of God. Let me say that one more time. If the book of Acts teaches us one thing, it teaches us that the Spirit of God empowers the people of God to accomplish the mission of God. Although the Holy Spirit does great, uh, many great works in us, he convicts us of sin, he draws us to Jesus, he illuminates our eyes to see and believe the truth, he fills us, he transforms us, he comforts us, he leads us, he prays for us, he gives us gifts, he matures us, he prunes us, he sanctifies us, he keeps us, he does many great and powerful things in us and through us. The primary emphasis in the context of the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit empowers believers to fulfill the great commission. And we see this truth immediately playing out and unfolding as early as chapter 2 with Peter. After the Holy Spirit came and they were all praying in tongues, praising God and all the different people with their languages were going, what's going on? And Peter takes advantage of that moment, full of the Holy Spirit, emboldened and empowered, and he stands up and preaches a convicting, confronting message, calls them out, no sugarcoating, no making them feel good, not trying to give them the good feels. He just puts it out there and says, you guys crucified the Lord of glory. In fact, let's turn there, Acts 2 and verse 36. And he says this in the middle of the sermon. He says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Like if you're in that crowd, ouch. This isn't some feel-good message that he's given them. He's not beating around the bush or sugarcoating. He said, this person God has made both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified and he says 
And it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Why is that? Were they cut to the heart because Peter was some brilliant orator? Were they cut to the heart because he crafted the perfect sermon? Were they cut to the heart because he properly exegeted these Old Testament things and showed how they pointed back to Jesus? No, they were cut to the heart because he was speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that same Holy Spirit was convicting them of their sin. That same Holy Spirit was drawing 3,000 of them to the Lord. That same Holy Spirit was illuminating them to see the truth and respond with faith and repentance. And we'll see this. In verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said Peter, or said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice Peter's pointing out everyone who comes to faith in Christ receives the Holy Spirit. If you repent of your sin, place your faith in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We see this playing out. What I said a moment ago, that the Holy Spirit of God is given to empower the people of God to accomplish the purposes of God. We see it right there. And as we continue reading on through the book of Acts, there are many accounts where you see they are filled with the Spirit. Even Peter, who in the book of John chapter 20, when Jesus is with his disciples after resurrected, it says Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he's also there in Acts chapter 2 verse 4, where everyone received or was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you can turn to Acts chapter 4 again, where Peter again, it says, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Greek is consistent here saying filled again. And in fact, you can go further in the New Testament where you can see where the apostles are saying, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you get into the Greek syntax, it could literally be translated, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Perpetually, over and over. And we see these accounts in Acts that they are filled with the Spirit for the purposes of God. To accomplish the works of God. To do the works of God. All who are saved receive the Holy Spirit. We saw that in verse 38. Another place I want to flip really quick, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we've talked about quite a bit. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. For time's sake, I'm just going to get there real quick and read it. Or I'll read verses 12 and 13. For just, as one or for just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. He's talking about all of us having our part in the body of Christ. Verse 13. For in one spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, we all are baptized or we're, we were all baptized into one body baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink. All were made to drink of one spirit. So, all of that to say, 
If you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God, if you have been convicted of your sin, repented, and here's the kicker, come to true faith. Not inspiration in the moment of hearing a sermon. Not taught how to do a bunch of things that look like Christianity. But if you have had true faith and repentance, you receive the Holy Spirit. There's another passage in Acts chapter 4 where the Apostle Peter is preaching again to a massive crowd of sinners. And he confronts them and he says, repent and receive the Holy Spirit. He says, repent of your sins that times of refreshing may come through the Holy Spirit. He's calling them to repentance and faith in Christ that they might receive the Holy Spirit and be refreshed and transformed by him. And lastly, flipping back to Acts chapter 2 very quickly, I want to show one more evidence, one more fruit of the Holy Spirit in these people's lives, this first church. Acts 2, and we'll read verse 42. Here's the evidence right here. Are you ready for this? And they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Listen. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, he will not let you live for you. If the Holy Spirit lives in you, he will not let you live for you. Notice what these people do. They receive the Holy Spirit, they're transformed, they're made new by the power of God, and they start going, you know, I got a bunch of stuff and you guys have a bunch of needs, so what if I sell my stuff and we just have all things in common and we just make sure we take care of each other? Now let's look again at this whole dynamic of Narrative and normative, descriptive and prescriptive, because if it's all normative and if it's all prescriptive, let's all go talk to our realtors. But no, we don't do that. We recognize, okay, that was a response under the unction of the Holy Spirit for these individuals, but there is a principle in this narrative, which is the Holy Spirit works in your heart to change you in a way so much so that when you've been filled with the Holy Spirit of God, your life is no longer about you and you are given to the body of Christ and the mission of Christ. The Holy Spirit bonds you to the body of Christ and empowers you for the mission of Christ. The Holy Spirit was given to a people who were to give themselves to the mission of Christ and to give themselves to the body of Christ. Listen, Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Meaning, someone who loves you sometimes is going to tell you some hard truths. I love living in Wisconsin. Almost 10 years, I love living here. In case you didn't know, out of all the places I've lived, Virginia, Florida, Louisiana, Texas, Arkansas, and now Wisconsin, Wisconsin's one of the most clannish places I've ever lived. And there can be some strengths and some blessings from that. But there is very much a me, my four, leave us alone. You do your Jesus. We're going to do our Jesus. And that's not biblical. The Holy Spirit of God tears down the walls between Jews and Gentiles. 
between slaves and free, between rich and poor, between Romans and Jews. Like the Holy Spirit takes all these people from all these different backgrounds to where they all recognize God is doing something so powerful and so amazing among us that I'm just giving my life, my possessions, my resources to it and to us because God's doing something. What if the Holy Spirit of God worked in our lives, in our hearts, and throughout our church family that we could be so united? What, what could we do? What could we accomplish for the purposes of God? What a difference, what an impact could we make in this time God has given us here on this life, on this earth? If we're truly filled with the Holy Spirit, if you've truly received the Spirit from God, if you've truly been saved, regenerated, and transformed by the God of the universe, then those preferences you have to just be me in my corner with me and Jesus, God says, come on, I've got better for you. Let's make the table bigger. Let's expand the room. Let's bring more chairs around the table because God loves more people than you and your four. And God has more for those people from you. And God has more for you from them. And we have to be willing to sit around the table with people who are not like us. Why? Because we have the same God. We've all been made to drink from one spirit. We've all been baptized from that one spirit into one body. And the Holy Spirit will not let you live for yourself rather than for him and for others. And if you have been living that way and you're not convicted and drawn into opening up your life to others, then I wonder if you've desensitized your heart to the Holy Spirit, hardened your heart, and resisted his promptings and resisted his leadings, his nudges, his, ur his urgings, and his commands from Scripture. The Holy Spirit of God has been given to the people of God to accomplish the purposes of God. We need each other. We need the Holy Spirit if we're going to do what he has called us to do. Lord, I pray today that for all of us, if there's anyone present who does not know you, who has not been filled and transformed by your Holy Spirit, Lord, I ask today that you would open their eyes to the truth. I ask that your Holy Spirit would come in and transform them. I ask for all of us, Lord, as we see one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin. Convict us, Lord, if there's sin in our lives, if there's attitudes, if there's behaviors, if there's actions, if there's words that are not pleasing to you, would you convict us of that? Let us feel that prick of love that confrontation of love. Lord, I ask also that, that your Holy Spirit, if there's anyone present or watching or in the commons that has not been made new and transformed by you, Lord, I ask that you would give them that faith. Let them ask to receive the Holy Spirit. Let them ask to be transformed by you. And Lord, I ask in your goodness that you would answer that with a resounding yes. And Lord, for whatever gifts you give to each of us, Lord, I ask that you would let us use them for your glory, for your purposes, and for the good of the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.